I always get a great night's sleep on my Lisa mattress. Try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. Available in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Germany online with free shipping. This 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a box right to your door. Or try it at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City, and Virginia Beach, and over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. Get $160 off when you go to lisa.com slash women. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash women. 1998 was a chaotic time for Silicon Valley. Investors were throwing cash at newfound information-based projects known as websites. They were blinded by this shiny new technology and created what we now know as the dot-com bubble, a time when the market value of certain online companies was well beyond their actual value. In just a few short years, that bubble would inevitably burst, leaving an industry in rubble and the opportunity for several key companies to blossom. One such company, known as Google Incorporated, was quietly being created in a modest garage in Menlo Park, California. Little did anyone know, that garage would play an important and unexpected role in shaping the Internet. Because the woman that owned that garage was not just any woman. She was a savvy, insightful, forward-thinking jack-of-all-trades. Her name is Susan Wojcicki, and today she is one of the most powerful women in the world. Welcome to Great Women of Business. I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. In this podcast, we don't just tell you about women who change the face of business. We tell you how they change the face of business. We'll spotlight business principles that you can use yourself and dive into the complex lives and unique challenges faced by female visionaries, icons, and leaders. New episodes of our 12-episode series will come out on Tuesdays, and you can find us on your favorite podcast directory. While you're there, we'd truly appreciate a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Some call her the most powerful woman in television. Some say she's the most powerful woman on the Internet. Others still have said she's the most important person in advertising. Most don't even know her name. Susan Wojcicki is an incredible navigator of opportunity. In her own words, quote, Rarely are opportunities presented to you in a perfect way, in a nice little box with a yellow bow on top. Here, open it. It's perfect. You'll love it. Opportunities, the good ones, are messy, confusing, and hard to recognize. They're risky. They challenge you. End quote. Wojcicki is a conductor of opportunity. She manages a beautiful and cohesive orchestra within the chaotic world of Silicon Valley. And she does so with her back to the audience, preferring to give credit for her numerous achievements to her team of musicians. She's worked behind the scenes with incredible finesse and subtle, persistent brilliance. 
every single day that you log online, you experience the effects of Susan Wojcicki's work. She lives in the folds of the internet, on millions of websites, and in the countless videos we watch. But perhaps it's more interesting how relatively unknown Wojcicki is, despite the fact that her work affects over one billion people a month. Her name continues to be almost like a well-kept secret amongst the Silicon Valley elite. Currently, Wojcicki is the CEO of YouTube, the world's leading video platform and second most popular website. She did this by systematically climbing the ranks of the world's first most popular website, Google. Today, we will look at her rise through these ranks and how she was a key player in making Google one of the largest companies in the world. In order to do so, we must dive into the business principles she utilized. All of these principles revolve in some way around Wojcicki's ability to not only recognize opportunity, but to execute upon that opportunity with immediacy. We'll cover guerrilla marketing creating a business tribe through consumer loyalty, belief in your product, disruptive technology, and the importance of work-life balance. These were all tools Susan Wojcicki wielded to become one of the most powerful women in the world. A title that found her way to Wojcicki not through a love of technology, but of creativity. A passion that was founded in her childhood and carried her forward into the tech capital of the world. Susan Wojcicki was born on July 5, 1968, in Los Altos, California, to Stanley and Esther Wojcicki. Her mother taught journalism in high school, while her father was a physics professor at Stanford University. Wojcicki claims that growing up near Stanford allowed her access to people immersed in their genuine passions. It inspired her and her sisters to constantly push boundaries and take things one step forward. There must have been something in the water because Susan's two sisters found quite a bit of success in their own right. Janet Wojcicki earned her Ph.D. in anthropology and epidemiology. And Anne Wojcicki founded the genomic and biotechnology company 23andMe. Esther Wojcicki, the matriarch of the brilliant family, claims that the sense of freedom she gave her children helped them to believe in forging their own path. Speaking to Susan in a 2016 mother-daughter interview, Esther Wojcicki said, quote, I gave you a ton of freedom. I let you pick your own breakfast cereal, as long as it didn't have sugar in it. I gave you a lot of opportunity to pick all kinds of things in your life. For example, you were five or six, you picked a hot pink rug for your bedroom, and we had to live with that for 10 years. It was like fluorescent pink. It was shag." End quote. By granting Susan this early level of independence, Esther fostered an environment where Wojcicki could cultivate a passion for creativity through responsibility and consequence. This love of creating and encouraging creators would drive Wojcicki her whole career. From a young age, Susan had an affinity for business. When she was 11, she went around selling spice ropes, or braided yarn with spices attached, door-to-door with her best friend. To this day, she jokes about how even though her parents supplied the overhead, the business quickly turned a profit. 
That type of tenacity earned her a spot at Harvard, where she enrolled in 1986 to study history and literature. Wojcicki's interests were not initially in technology. In fact, she wanted to pursue a PhD in economics and a career in academia. However, a series of summer jobs would soon disrupt that sentiment, and fortunately for us, alter the history of Silicon Valley. Every summer, Wojcicki would come home to Silicon Valley to work for a temp agency. They would send her to different offices to do mundane tasks like filing at a doctor's office and answering phones for a garbage collection company. As luck would have it, one time the temp agency sent her to a technology startup. This lit a fire in Wojcicki. She saw young, creative, inspired people working furiously towards their goal, and she sought to join their ranks. In her senior year of college, she enrolled for a computer science course. And then another. She was slowly discovering that though it appeared more science-based, computer science could lead to an entirely untapped potential of human creativity. Wojcicki graduated with honors from Harvard in 1990. Even then, Wojcicki's mother Esther would have sworn that she wanted to pursue a career in education. However, her first job after college was with an educational software startup called Magic Quest. With her English major in hand, Wojcicki wrote the content for that company. After just a few short weeks, she decided once and for all to pursue a career in technology, but not before she finished her education. First, she got a master's of science in economics from UC Santa Cruz in 1993. Then an MBA from UCLA in 1998. Now fully armed with what only a physics professor's daughter would consider a sufficient education, Susan Wojcicki moved to Silicon Valley. She landed a job as a marketing specialist at Intel, which was and continues to be one of the world's largest semiconductor chip makers. 1998 was a big year for the 30-year-old Wojcicki. She married her husband Dennis Troper, a man she met at UC Santa Cruz, and purchased a house that would not only change her life but would change the course of internet history. In the fall of that year, Wojcicki purchased 232 Santa Margarita Avenue in Menlo Park, California, for $600,000. This is a substantial sum that today pushes one million dollars. Wojcicki needed help paying off the mortgage, and to do so, she turned to two graduate computer science students at Stanford University. Their names were Sergey Brin and Larry Page. Fresh off a one hundred thousand dollar investment, the two eager students were ready for an official space for a little-known business they called Google Incorporated. Wojcicki admits that opening her home to these two was not impressive foresight, but rather just a combination of opportunity and need. Today, Wojcicki shrugs off the move in her typical humble fashion, claiming real estate in Silicon Valley is pricey and she needed help. She rented out the space for seventeen hundred dollars a month, a price she acknowledges with a smile was a little high. She even charged them a security deposit when they moved in. Google was not the only major technology company to start in a garage. In fact, many of the biggest companies in the world shared these humble beginnings. 
Apple, Microsoft, and Amazon were all companies that first appeared in the space you normally keep a car or long-forgotten boxes filled with storage. It makes sense for technology businesses to start this way. In order to come to fruition, the most important force behind remarkable ideas are passion and perseverance. But the garage businesses highlight a key business principle that all ideas need execution. In order to execute, you must work within your means. Zero in on the thing you can accomplish now and get it done. All of those major companies shared the fantastic trait that they were able to focus on a single idea and execute upon it. Steve Wozniak knew that Apple's personal computer could offer a unique technology, allowing for cost-effective display. However, Steve Jobs identified a way they could quickly turn a profit by making and selling their processing boards to local electronics companies. Jeff Bezos had the vision for an everything store. But he focused first on books because each book is standard across the world. People know what a book is and therefore will purchase it without touching or feeling it first. Microsoft was a bit different. Paul Allen and Bill Gates saw an ad for the new microcomputer, the Altair 8800. They saw an opportunity to write an interpreter or a program that could execute commands for the machine using the programming language. Basic. For all of these businesses, the garage represents the idea of executing within your limitations. It's all right to have grand and vague goals, but within those goals, you must have executable actions you can take. Without this, your business will stagnate and fail to get off the ground. Google did not succeed because it was an original idea. In fact. There were hundreds of search engine websites in 1998 with much more capital at their fingertips than Google. But what Google did have was a clear mission, quote, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful, end quote, and a method for executing upon it. In business, ideas are abundant. But execution is rare and will test the dedication of all entrepreneurs. When Google moved into that garage in Menlo Park, California, they also got an employee that would take their company to unknown heights. Susan Wojcicki saw the value of the search engine fairly immediately. She started using it for her own purposes right off the bat. When the website went down one afternoon, she found herself stuck and unable to get work done. It was then that she realized the value of Google, and when a position opened up, she joined immediately. In 1999, Google moved out of Wojcicki's house and into their first official offices. Wojcicki, with her incredible prowess at sniffing out opportunity, left her job at Intel to become Google's first marketing manager and 16th employee overall. This was not just a foresight into the future of Google, as much as it was a foresight into the future of the tech industry. Silicon Valley was slowly moving away from an industry of hardware and semiconductors and into the world of software with websites and operating systems. By moving away from Intel's computer chip industry and into the more primordial business of search engines, Wojcicki was leaving behind a known entity, for one that was unknown and risky, but filled with infinite potential. 
Her move to Google is another example of recognizing opportunity and doing what is necessary to pursue that opportunity. This was in spite of several difficulties working against her. Number one, women have had a historically difficult time finding jobs in male-dominated Silicon Valley. In 1998, women held only 32 percent of jobs in computing, despite making up nearly 60 percent of the overall workforce. This number was on the decline as it peaked at 36 percent in 1990 and has continued to fall to about 25 percent today. There are many theories as to the cause of this decline. Longtime Silicon Valley executive Minnie Ingersoll attributes it to an aggressive, male-dominated environment that encourages terse, punctuated confidence, even when in the wrong. But Wojcicki was an anomaly and navigated these odds with a quiet persistence. And on top of everything, when she joined Google at 30 years old, she was four months pregnant. Wojcicki admits that this was a little bit of a leap of faith. She was leaving behind job security at a stable, established company to jump on the bandwagon of a startup that had barely shed its training wheels. To do so with a baby on the way shows that Wojcicki must have seen something in Google the rest of the world had yet to notice. The Wojcicki claims that most of Google's employees in 1999 were students without significant others. Brin and Page were supportive of her pregnancy. They even went as far as to offer to build Wojcicki a daycare. This was before they had any revenue plans in place. Wojcicki quickly felt at home at Google, and she used a loose and exploratory method to help kick the company off the ground. Of her early days at the startup, Wojcicki said, quote, "Because I didn't have a fixed role at first, I was always looking for an opportunity." End quote. Because of Google's startup nature, her role as a marketing manager required her to be creative and poke around in the dark to find areas to grow the company. Wojcicki was forced to constantly be creative with a head on a swivel. This need was exacerbated by the fact that she was marketing manager of a company that had zero marketing budget. This was an especially pertinent difficulty given the landscape of Silicon Valley. 2001 is a year the dot coms would just as soon forget. We saw 100,925 job cuts announced uh, in 2001. That was double what we saw in the previous year. That's Challenger Gray and Christmas CEO John Challenger. He says, despite that gloom and doom, there is a flicker of sunshine. The cuts have been falling dramatically.、Uh, the great bulk of the cuts, over 74,000, happened in the first、uh, six months of the year. In December, just 2,900. Uh, cuts were announced. Challenger says not all the dot coms are facing hard times. The e-tailers, for example, now 72 percent of、uh, Americans use the internet in the travel sector in particular. That they're expecting 14 billion dollars in revenue to take place over the internet.、Uh, that's a, a growing area of the dot com area of the sector. The burst of the dot com bubble in 2000 exposed many websites for having no means of incoming revenue. Hundreds of websites and businesses shut down because of overambitious investors in an undeveloped economy. So Wojcicki helped to pave the way. She knew that search engines first and most importantly needed exposure. In order to expose Google to the world without an advertising budget, Wojcicki turned to an old ally. Academia. 
She offered universities around the country the opportunity to embed the Google search bar into the institution's website for free. This ingenious move not only solidified Google as a reliable source by allying it with various research institutes, but also placed it in the world where it would be used the most. Again, we see Wojcicki's brilliant recognition of opportunity. It's vitally important in business, especially when dealing with a new technology, to show the consumer why they need that technology. This type of innovative, low-cost marketing technique is known as guerrilla marketing, and today it is one of the most used strategies by startups. In 2011, the UK company Spotify mulled over how they were going to guarantee a successful launch in the United States. Instead of paying for advertisement, they developed an integration with Facebook. This allowed users to see their friends' playlists and therefore the social aspect to the new music app. In 2007, Mint.com, a personal finance website, was struggling to find users. Instead of driving website traffic by spending money, founder Aaron Patzer began a personal finance blog directed at young professionals. By freely offering expertise, Patzer was able to direct millions of users to his site as his posts were shared across the internet. These creative marketing tactics enabled consumers to gain something when they came across an advertisement. The companies, in a sense, were offering something for free outside of their product, building a foundation of trust. Finding exposure in the right atmosphere is a fundamental key to cheap and creative marketing for a budding startup, or in Wojcicki's terms, recognizing and untangling the opportunity. It starts to build trust, proving that the company is aware of its audience and its product functionality. The university campaign worked, and Google began to be recognized across the country as a reliable and straightforward search engine. With its unique technology and inspired free marketing campaigns, it was poised to continue to grow, slowly morphing into the search giant we know today. Though her contributions to the website might already seem major, Wojcicki was just warming up. By trusting her instinct in seeking out opportunity, Wojcicki was laying the ground for the search engine to make waves around the world. But she was just getting started. Within the decade, she would develop a product that would entirely change the economics of the internet. Support for today's show comes from Audible, offering the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet. Whether you're hiking, sunbathing, road tripping, or enjoying downtime outdoors, Audible lets you fill your summer with more stories like Brotopia. Breaking Up the Boys Club of Silicon Valley by Emily Chang. This fantastic book features interviews with great women of business, including Susan Wojcicki. And from now until July 31st, Amazon Prime members can get Audible for only $4.95 a month for the first three months. Go to audible.com/greatwomen or text "great women" to 500-500 to get started. That's audible. A u d i b l e dot com slash g r e a t w o m e n or text great women to five hundred five hundred. 
Amazon Prime members can get Audible for $4.95 a month for the first three months. That's like getting three months for the price of one. After that, it's only $14.95 a month. This offer ends July 31st, 2018. And here's something else we think you'll like. Lola tampons are 100% cotton with BPA-free plastic applicators. Lola makes your month a little bit easier. Our subscription is fully customizable. You can choose your mix of light, regular, and supers, your number of boxes, and frequency of delivery, because you know your body best. And Lola now offers pads and liners, as well as non-applicator tampons for those looking for a more environmentally friendly option. I like that Lola was founded by women, for women. And with every purchase, Lola donates feminine care products to homeless shelters across the U.S. I got my Lola prescription because I love not having to run out to the store. It's so convenient to get everything I need delivered. I love the Lola packaging. It's cute, feminine, and funny. For 40% off all subscriptions, visit mylola.com and enter WOMEN40 when you subscribe. That's M-Y-L-O-L-A dot com, promo code WOMEN40. Now, let's get back to the story. By 2002, Google had emerged from the chaos as the world's best search engine. The genius behind Google's technology was that it ranked websites by popularity. It did so through analyzing the amount of external websites that linked to the original website. This meant that unlike other search engines filled with spam and the backwash of the internet, Google's results displayed trustworthy sites first and foremost. In doing so, the company began to change the way we approach the world every day, offering ease of information in places we never knew we wanted. To get any question answered instantly is one of the promises of the Internet, and Google is a search engine that delivers almost every time. Instead of returning every page that happens to include your search words, Google ranks pages according to how many other pages link to them, the theory being that the more people linking to a page, the better it must be. The result is that the first hit almost always includes exactly what you want. By clicking the I'm feeling lucky button for a search, you go right to the page and bypass the hit list. And there's more. Type in a street address, Google recognizes it and links to a map service. Choose the service you want, click, and there's your map. You're two clicks away from any address. It also looks up definitions automatically. Any word you enter that matches a dictionary definition is underlined and clickable. And to reduce broken links, Google keeps its own copy of the page. So you can always find it. It's at www.google.com. With the release of AdWords in 2000, a software that allowed companies to display ads on Google's search result pages, the search engine finally had a method of making revenue. They charged advertisers for a space on their search results page based on an auction system. The more you paid, the more display time you got. But as far as 34-year-old Susan Wojcicki was concerned... This was just scratching the surface of what the company's advertising industry was capable of. She envisioned Google advertising products on a much larger scale. She saw that across the Internet, there was an incredible amount of space that could be used and turned into profit. Once again, Wojcicki recognized a place where opportunity lurked and found a way to navigate the rocky waters to make her vision happen. That vision started by considering the ad space on the Internet more like real estate than two-dimensional pages. 
every website we visit has a certain amount of space available for the website publisher. The layout of websites allow for extra space on the screen outside of the primary area of content. Wojcicki saw an opportunity to fill the negative space on popular websites. However, she realized a very important concept early on. Just like in the real estate market, you would not want to build a building out of its element. You wouldn't put a two-story house downtown, surrounded by skyscrapers, or a skyscraper out in the inaccessible suburbs. In real estate, it makes sense to put similar buildings next to each other to relegate purpose to a certain neighborhood. Wojcicki realized that just like in real estate, people browsing certain websites would not want to be inundated with advertisements from a completely unrelated source. If you're reading a fitness blog, it would be more pertinent to get ads for a nutritional milkshake than car tires. And with this subtle but powerful insight, Wojcicki began developing the product that would come to be known as AdSense. The program launched in March 2003, just three years after the launch of AdWords, and exploded onto the internet scene. The brilliance of AdSense was that it was a mutually beneficial relationship for Google, the website, the advertising business, and the consumer. By placing advertisements on appropriate websites, advertisers would pay Google, Google would pay the website based on the amount of attention the ad got, and consumers had access to products based on their current research. The key here is that web publishers would receive a payout just because they created a web page that demanded traffic. AdSense redefined the economic landscape of the internet. Suddenly, anybody could start a website for any reason and earn a profit. Whether that be a blog, a how-to site, or a photography portfolio, AdSense opened up the internet for content creation as it never had been before. To give you an idea of how powerful of an accomplishment this was, AdSense is not only responsible for bringing in almost $16 billion to Google each year, but also has become the entire means of revenue for major blogs and websites worldwide. In 2017, the largest earner through AdSense was the website WikiHow, which made $1.8 million a month. Content creators, website publishers, and creatives now had a direct method of earning money simply by producing the thing they were passionate about. AdSense worked so dramatically well because it opened up a direct channel between Google and creators. It created a segment of the economy that never existed before, a way to advertise in a digital, non-traditional format. Consider the company GoPro, the personal camera for adventure types everywhere. Because the use of GoPro is based entirely around the content creation of consumers, the marketing work is done for them. It's this business principle that Wojcicki used. She harnessed the power of content creation worldwide in order to make revenue for her company. Beyond this, AdSense was filling a need that the world did not know was there, creating a method for website publishers to have a means of monetization. This is an immensely important concept for new and established businesses alike. To fill an unseen hole in the market is a tricky endeavor, 
First, you have to show the consumer that the hole exists, that there is a need for a commodity in an unknown space. Then you must prove that your method of filling that hole is the best one. Take Kickstarter, an online platform that allows the masses to donate money to an individual looking to complete a project. This could be a designer, a painter, a novelist, an engineer, or a computer scientist. Anyone with the vision and purpose, but without the funds to fully realize their vision. These creators can use Kickstarter as a way to generate the initial revenue to get their project off the ground. The donation principle ties the creator directly to the consumer, and it removes the need to take out loans or find investments. By having a platform become a middleman, Kickstarter enables creators to do what they want to do most: create. This business model almost seems to blend the consumer with the business. This type of inclusion marketing is what Seth Godin calls a tribe. Quote, a tribe is a group of people connected to one another, connected to a leader, and connected to an idea. For millions of years, human beings have been part of one tribe or another. A group needs only two things to be a tribe: a shared interest and a way to communicate. End quote. By creating a tribe, you are creating a business with loyalty, a business in which the customers genuinely care about the company, and will go to great lengths to uphold the product and uphold its values. In Wojcicki's case, within ten years, AdSense was used by over two million website publishers. Today, that reach spreads to nearly fifteen million websites. That's hundreds of thousands of customers willing to advocate for and sell her product for her. If you convince the consumer of how great the product is and make it what Godin calls remarkable or worth remarking on, the consumer will become a personal advocate of your products, a new and authentic source of marketing. Wojcicki was able to build this empire by tapping into the basic human desires for freedom and creativity. Wojcicki says herself that the thing she's most excited about with AdSense is the content it allows people to create. Quote, "My favorite thing about AdSense is hearing the publishers' stories. I'm just always amazed at how creative people are in the world." End quote. She continues today to be a champion of content creation and the freedom to use the internet as a tool of expression. She gave the web a gift it did not know it needed, and people have been profiting ever since. Though AdSense was Wojcicki's greatest early success within the ranks of Google, it was not the only thing she did for the company. Her mark is littered throughout the company and its history. Wojcicki is responsible for Google Doodles, the little doodles that are on Google's front page, celebrating major holidays and happenings around the world. She helped develop Google Images, where people could search the internet for images, and Google Books, an endeavor that looked to catalog the publishing world so that entire texts and magazines are searchable through the internet. Wojcicki credits these developments to the sense of freedom she had when first working at Google. She said, "Quote: When you join a startup, you just have to be willing to do whatever the startup needs." But part of it also was that I didn't have as fixed a role at first. I was always looking for the opportunity, so I was like, "Oh, look, there's an opportunity." For example, when I worked on image search, 
No one else is working on image search. There are all these people that are working on the text search, but images would be really cool, end quote. Again, we see the key word of opportunity and how important it is in Wojcicki's successes. Her ability to not only see where something is missing, but then to develop and execute within that space is what set her apart in the early days at Google. Her imagination and drive to expand Google's capabilities eventually led her to start Google Video in 2005. It was a free video hosting service that allowed people to post videos on Google's servers. But there was an annoying startup that soon came to dominate in the video hosting space, a small company that, no matter how Wojcicki maneuvered, seemed to outpace her. She flailed against this enemy, but it seemed to always be a step ahead of the technology giant. And then, in October of 2006, 38-year-old Susan Wojcicki had an idea. When you look at what Google adds to what YouTube already has, you have to look at Google's distribution, Google's prowess in advertising, and Google's vast resources. She drafted a model for Google to purchase YouTube, including some rather gaudy growth numbers. She advocated heavily for the acquisition and took the lead in making it happen. Thanks to Wojcicki's efforts, Google bought YouTube for the solid sum of $1.65 billion. This was the largest acquisition by Google up until that point. To give a reference as to how big of a move this was for Google, in 2005, the company purchased 15 companies for $130.5 million total. What made this so profound was not just that this was unique for Google, but this was unique for the entire tech industry. Ever since the dot-com crash, companies had been hesitant to spend big or risk any amount of money on a website, let alone over a billion dollars. This not only highlights the respect and persuasive power she garnered, but it shows how much Wojcicki believed in the product YouTube had to offer. Wojcicki herself told UCLA business students to, quote, join a company where you believe in the product, end quote. While she was obviously buying the product in this scenario and not joining the company, she was, in a way, risking her career on it. The instant reaction to this acquisition was mixed. Billionaire Mark Cuban famously called the purchase crazy. Steven Mitzenmacher, who in 2006 was a Yahoo Senior Director of Corporate Development, slammed Google for overpaying. There were concerns that YouTube had no method of revenue and were worried about the potential licensing issues that came with video sharing. Wojcicki saw it differently. She saw opportunity and another platform in which content creators could express themselves. It was a product she believed in and a product she had a vision for. Enough so that she convinced the Google executives to execute. Believing in your product is a major cornerstone of launching or maintaining a successful business. No matter what space you're in, there will be detractors and critics looking to knock the pedestal from underneath you and ready to tell you your product does not work. To overcome that criticism, the first step is believing in and trusting the product you work with. The founder of Huffington Post, Ariana Huffington, says, quote, 
If you're going to start a business, you need to really love it because not everybody is going to love it. When the Huffington Post was first launched in 2005, there were so many detractors. I remember a critic who wrote that the Huffington Post was an unsurvivable failure. End quote. It's because you see something the public does not, because you recognize a space for growth and development that they will at first be skeptical of your vision. Being stubborn with this vision can take you a long way. The Huffington Post survived a host of critics who thought the unpaid blogging and content model to be absolutely absurd, and some of them were right at first. It took years for the Huffington Post to turn a profit and become popular enough to garner attention worldwide. Nevertheless, because she believed in the product, Ariana Huffington and her team persisted. They sold the company to AOL in 2011 for 315 million dollars. We cannot stress how important this principle is for entrepreneurs. Believing in your product, trusting it, knowing it works, will take a company a long way. Wojcicki manufacturing the purchase of YouTube stemmed from this belief. This acquisition also emphasizes another business principle, what Harvard business professor Clay Christensen calls his disruptive technology theory. This theory states that technology grows at a faster rate than the user's needs for that technology. In layman's terms, this means that when a new disruptive technology is invented, it appears at first to be useless because there's no user need yet for that technology. Entrepreneur Chris Dixon says that this principle makes these new technologies look like a toy to an outside observer. He uses the example of the telephone. When the phone was first released, it could only range about a mile or two. In 1879, Alexander Graham Bell offered to sell the phone to Western Union for $100,000. He thought that the telegraph company could offer the most support thanks to their domination of the communication industry. Western Union passed on the deal. They saw the technology as limited and could not see its use. It only took several years for them to realize the mistake. They were bought out of the telephone market completely and watched as Graham Bell piled on cash year after year. In 2006, YouTube had an appearance of a toy. It was a free streaming service that looked like more of a luxury than a difference maker. Video streaming was not yet in the mainstream, and without astute observation, the potential was hard to see. But if you're capable of recognizing disruptive technology and see something that will grow quickly enough to occupy its own economic space, you will be in a good position—one that has more leverage the more patient you are. Wojcicki knew that YouTube was ahead of its time and was a precursor to a generation of online video. The purchase of YouTube changed a lot for Wojcicki. Her reputation within the ranks of Google was growing immensely, and she was being rewarded. By 2006, the 38-year-old was in charge of all of Google's advertising networks. To give you a sense of how powerful that made her, Google's advertising products were and are responsible for about 90% of the company's total revenue. 
In 2007, Wojcicki furthered that business by helping to broker Google's $3.1 billion acquisition of the advertiser DoubleClick. DoubleClick had made a name for itself in the display advertising space. It had great relationships with web publishers, and Google coveted those relationships. DoubleClick's innovative technology and far-reaching influence would fit seamlessly with AdSense's targeting software. When asked about the purchase, Wojcicki said, quote, By working together, we're going to be able to offer a variety of tools for advertisers to do better internet targeting. Advertisers will be able to spend more and be able to make rational decisions about how they're spending their ad dollars, end quote. Wojcicki and Google's stranglehold on the Internet's advertisement sector was increasing at an incredible rate. By continuing to seize opportunities and recognizing the best areas for growth, Wojcicki was instrumental in positioning the search engine to become one of the most powerful companies in the world. By the end of 2007, Wojcicki's official title was Vice President Product Management. Really, she was in charge of AdWords, AdSense, DoubleClick, and Google Analytics. She had helped invent Google Doodles, Google Images, and Google Video. She had manufactured some of Google's largest purchases, including YouTube and DoubleClick. For anyone, that would be an incredible and fulfilling career. She not only shaped the fabric of the Internet, but she played a vital role in solidifying Google's place as one of the world's biggest advertising companies. But Susan Wojcicki was far from finished. The maestra of Silicon Valley's behind-the-scenes brilliance was only gaining momentum. She would continue to climb the ladder of Google and eventually run the second-largest website in the world, all while raising five children and refusing to work overtime. Now it's time for a quick break. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Luckily, Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. Gusto makes payroll a breeze. In fact, 9 out of 10 users say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. And 4 out of 5 customers actually reduce payroll errors after switching to Gusto. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service for your team. Focus on your business, not payroll and paperwork. And to help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash women. That's gusto.com slash women. Now let's get back to the story. By 2007, 38-year-old Susan Wojcicki was quickly rising the ranks of Google. She had proven time and again her affinity for finding opportunities in the right place. But as she reminds us, business is not about simply finding the opportunities, but managing to execute upon them. Wojcicki was able to do this despite being a part of what people call the Silicon Valley Boys Club. 
While Wojcicki is fairly private about her children in the time of her five pregnancies, she's vocal that it was not always easy to manage around an inherently sexist business culture. When she was pregnant with her second child in the early 2000s, she claims that her co-workers expected her to quit. Nobody thought a woman could work in the rigorous technology industry while being a mother of two. Wojcicki goes on to say, quote, I do see a lot of microaggressions in the company. People interrupting you, people explaining basic things to you as if you don't understand them, or just people thinking your male colleague has more experience. Who are they talking to when they ask a hard question?" End quote. Many have long theorized about the decline in women working in computing. A 2008 Harvard Business Review study found that 52% of women in science, engineering, and technology jobs will eventually change fields. That number is staggering. Half of all women who ever begin in these industries leave. This comes down to a work environment that operates in a debasing and masculine manner. Women are talked over, shut down, and rejected even if they have better ideas and are more qualified than their male counterparts. The data shows that this not only makes a difficult work environment for women, but hurts the company as a whole. A study in 2016 by the Peterson Institute of International Economics found that a move from 0% female representation in leadership to 30% increased overall profits by 15%. Another study by Credit Suisse in 2014 showed that having 50% female representation in leadership had 19% more return on equity, or a company's overall net assets. That is, those companies were 19% more efficient on using their company's investments to turn it into growth. Gender diversity helps your business grow. That question is not in doubt. By building a culture that subtly rejects the female worker and nurtures a boys' club, Silicon Valley is shooting itself in the foot. It is severely limiting the potential of the industry. It's also a major reason why most of us outside of the tech industry have not heard of Susan Wojcicki. The technology industry has become a place of pseudo-celebrity. America has glorified the pioneers of the early internet and told their stories countless times. Journalist Emily Chang argues in her book Brotopia, Breaking Up the Boys Club of Silicon Valley, that Wojcicki's story is told less often because she does not fit the stereotype mold of a Silicon Valley success story. Chang writes, quote, Wojcicki's story remains largely untold because it's easier to get a story printed or to air it if it fits a preconceived idea. The story of the Internet, the media has decided, is the tale of Internet startups driven by brilliant nerds or bros of a certain age. The story of a brilliant woman who every day manages to prioritize both her work and her family just doesn't fit that stereotype of the high-rolling, risk-taking genius tech revolutionary." End quote. The failure to recognize the greatness and genius behind Wojcicki's story is representational of cultured biases instilled for far too long. However, true to form, Wojcicki has taken on the problem of the lack of female representation in Silicon Valley with practical and persistent solutions. 
In 2007, she helped shape and evolve Google's maternity leave policy. The company switched from 12 to 18 weeks paid maternity leave. Since that switch, the rate at which new mothers quit Google fell 50%. Nobody quite understands the importance of maternity leave like Susan Wojcicki. She currently has five children and often cites her time away from the company as a good rest period to consider alternative perspectives. In Wojcicki's own words, quote, Mothers come back to the workforce with new insights. I know from experience that being a mother gave me a broader sense of purpose, more compassion, and a better ability to prioritize and get things done efficiently. It also helped me understand the specific needs and concerns of mothers who make most household spending decisions and control more than $2 trillion of purchasing power in the U.S., end quote. But the most important part of motherhood is how it helps her find a balance between work and life. Despite raising five children with her husband, Dennis Troper, who also happens to be a high-ranking executive at Google, Wojcicki insists on being home for dinner every night. She is unbelievably persistent on finding a balance between her work and her personal life. She claims that it helps her identify which solutions can be solved immediately and helps her filter out inefficient ideas. This balance worked impressively for Susan Wojcicki. In 2010, she was promoted to senior vice president, a position held by only eight of Google's 24,000 employees. The position was almost entirely honorary. Wojcicki's role remained the same, but the company wanted to recognize her for her success in Google's unprecedented growth in the advertising sector. Wojcicki was responsible for growing Google's advertising revenue from $400 million in 2002 to $55 billion in 2013. This meteoric rise stemmed from her ability to remain passionate and retain flexibility throughout her tenure. Current Google CEO Sundar Pichai said Wojcicki, quote, has always been someone who could do pretty much anything. End quote. But her behind-the-scenes rise was yet to be finished. In February of 2014, Google tapped 45-year-old Susan Wojcicki to head the company she helped acquire. Shortly thereafter, Wojcicki became CEO of YouTube and immediately looked to expand the company. In previous years, YouTube had struggled with generating ad revenue, and Google knew that there was no better person at boosting advertisement product than Susan Wojcicki. She took the reins of the company with her signature balanced determination and continues to look for places it can evolve. YouTube's business model is a tricky one. It is, in a sense, a platform that is in its own world, defining its own rules. Even though it's paved the way for streaming services like Netflix and Hulu by showing the world that online video was an attractive alternative to television, it remains a particularly unique website. Both Netflix and Hulu are founded on licensing principles. That is, they strike deals with movie and TV producers to borrow content to host on their websites for a set amount of time. YouTube, on the other hand, is a creation platform. 
While it does have a host of television clips and movie trailers, a major source of its viewership is its original content. Gamers, sketch artists, how-to professionals, amateur actors, these are the type of people that drive the YouTube engine. It enables people to create unique and creative content, and in the more lucrative of cases, make a living doing so. If this sounds familiar to the story of Susan Wojcicki, that's because it is. AdSense, Wojcicki's brilliant Google creation, similarly functioned on the fundamental principle that, if given a proper platform and means of monetization, creative people will thrive. YouTube has created a new type of service, a telephone in the age of the telegraph, where people create entertainment from the comfort of their living room. To help understand how profound of a platform YouTube is, we have some data. By 2017, people worldwide watch about 1 billion hours of YouTube every single day. Every month, 1.5 billion unique users log into YouTube, half of the internet's total of 3 billion users. YouTube has become so large that it's not only competing with other streaming services, but with Hollywood itself. As Wojcicki announced at a party hosted for advertisers thinking of purchasing ad space on YouTube, quote, "Today, I'm happy to announce that on mobile alone, YouTube now reaches more 18 to 49-year-olds than any network, broadcast, or cable." In fact, We reach more 18 to 49-year-olds during prime time than the top 10 TV shows combined. At a time when TV networks are losing audiences, YouTube is growing in every region and across every screen. End quote. These staggering numbers show that YouTube is creating a new market, a different type of celebrity, and carving out a place amongst digitally elite websites. It continues to innovate as well. YouTube has a new subscription model called YouTube Red that they hope will compete with the original content being created by Netflix and Hulu. They also have their sights set on virtual reality, 360 video and other technologies that are the next evolution in the video sector. Even with these exciting changes, Wojcicki insists that the overall mission remains the same. She calls video a source of free information. And she hopes that YouTube can continue to provide a free platform to share and experience that information. Despite this seemingly incredible growth, many balk at the way Wojcicki handles the company, citing the fact that she still seems to treat the tech giant as though it's in its startup phase. Nobody knows for sure its net worth, but in 2018, Morgan Stanley valued the company at about 160 billion dollars. That makes it larger than Disney, Hollywood's largest movie studio. If this is the case, Wojcicki's insistence that YouTube is still in the investment phase is a peculiar one. Wojcicki explains this by saying, quote, "Really, what you need to focus on is growing the business when you're in a big growth area, and so you have to balance doing that and then doing that in a responsible way." End quote. She cites the largesse of the TV market, how it continues to be one of the largest markets in the economy, but notices the trend that millennials are not watching as much television. 
This means that YouTube has the opportunity to invest and grow because of this drift of millennials away from conventional entertainment. It's important here to point out the distinction between growth and profit. A company can grow tremendously for years before ever seeing a dime. As an entrepreneur, it's a complicated distinction when to shift the focus from investment and growth into profitability. Also, the ability to form relationships and convince investors to continue the support of a company is key to making it to the end of the growth stage. YouTube is lucky enough to have Google's infrastructure as a fallback. However, Wojcicki is savvy enough to know that it is worthwhile, for the time being, to focus that infrastructure inwards. YouTube is a new market and a platform creating its own rules. Wojcicki's enthusiasm for this platform is palpable. In an interview in October 2017, she said of YouTube, quote, I can't imagine a better platform, and I love the way that it's about information. I think it's this next generation type of information because it's video, it's sight, sound, and motion, it's incredibly powerful, and it's a global business. It's growing fast. It has all kinds of impact across the board in the way people can learn and start businesses and start media companies. I love what I do. End quote. She believes in her product. She believes in the technology. She knows that on a daily basis, it's changing the very nature of entertainment. And to grow something so powerful, it needs nurturing, like the time and care that it takes a great artist to carve an intricate sculpture. Wojcicki is single handedly chipping away at the stone of the entertainment industry. Making a splendid conglomerate of creativity, challenging economic conventions that have been in place for decades. But like all businesses on the frontier of technology, there's some controversy around YouTube. In 2017, brands that pay YouTube to advertise their companies, like Verizon and Walmart, were appalled to find that their ads were found on videos promoting terrorism and white supremacy. When these truths came to light, Wojcicki responded with her signature cool and balanced demeanor. Within weeks, YouTube employed machine learning technology to better recognize questionable ads. A new program would create a database of unique digital fingerprints to help automatically identify videos or images the companies could remove. Under the new partnership, the companies promised to share among themselves fingerprints of the most extreme and egregious terrorist images and videos they've removed from their services, which is likely content that would violate all their policies. The fast response and a formal, poignant apology assured advertisers that even a corporate giant like YouTube had the ability to be flexible and immediate in response to concerns. But advertisers aren't the only ones troubled with YouTube's operations. The content creators themselves have expressed frustration at the platform for not sharing a larger percentage of their advertisement revenue. However, this criticism has not phased Wojcicki. She stresses open communication and has even opened sectors of YouTube dedicated solely to dialogue with their content creators. In a creative economic venture like YouTube, there are many mouths to feed. 
But no matter what the controversy, there's no denying the impact YouTube has had across the entire entertainment industry. In 2017, Fast Company appropriately dubbed Susan Wojcicki the most important person in television. The decisions she makes as YouTube's chief will have a ripple effect across the creative economy. The rise of Susan Wojcicki was mixed with a perfect combination of fate and determination. Her incredible ability to recognize opportunity and not only untangle the complications that came with it, but also maximize the profits gained from that opportunity were unmatched. She navigated the swamp of Silicon Valley despite a deck naturally stacked against her, managing to do so within the confines of the ever-complex creative economy. Not only was she fundamental in laying the economic geography of the Internet, she was capable of doing so in a way that opened up countless new opportunities. Susan Wojcicki is both directly and indirectly responsible for helping to create jobs for millions of creators. Her influence stretches not just to the advertisements we click, but to the entertainment we enjoy and the inspiration we find in each and every Internet success story. Though she still is fighting against a greater beast of cultural sexism in Silicon Valley, in 2017, Wojcicki wrote several op-eds, one in response to sexual harassment allegations at two major technology companies, the second reacting to a memo written by a Google software engineer that claimed there were less women in tech because they were biologically inferior. Wojcicki responded to these ugly realities of her industry with her trademark poise and practicality. She admits to the difficulties she has struggled with in her rise through Silicon Valley's ranks, but proposes solutions. Her most important point? Hire more women. From all levels of management in all companies, hire more women. Listen to their opinions. Evolve as an industry. Susan Wojcicki's influence is perhaps most impressive when we consider her balance. She's one of the most powerful people in the world and still manages to make it home every night for dinner. She's led some of the most important business deals in Silicon Valley history, all while raising five children. Emily Chang, the author of Brotopia, is right. Wojcicki does not fit the stereotype of Silicon Valley, the boy genius toiling away in the garage, but her story is important nonetheless. She is the watchful eye looking over the garage, fostering an environment where dedicating too much time to either work or life does not take away from the other. For Wojcicki, they exist in cohesion, and her dedication to this synchronized existence has shaped the way we experience the world every single day. Thanks for listening to Great Women of Business. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Great Women of Business, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. 
It seems simple, but it really helps our show. In the meantime, go break some glass ceilings. Great Women of Business is produced by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. Sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Great Women of Business is written by Drew Cole and Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Vanessa Richardson. 